Sometimes I feel like I could use one of those For Dummies books. Do you know what I'm talking about? Those yellow and black books that dumb some subject or hobby down for you. Sometimes I feel like I could use one of those For Dummies books. Like, do they have one called Life and Ministry for Dummies? Or Discipleship for Dummies? Or Prayer for Dummies? Actually, they do have one on prayer. It's called Christian Prayer for Dummies. If you're tempted to buy Christian Prayer for Dummies, let me save you 20 bucks, and I'll just point you to 1 Kings chapter 3. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3, where we'll see life and ministry for dummies, and where we will see discipleship for dummies, and where we will see prayer for dummies. If you want to know more about life and ministry as disciples, or you want to learn more about prayer, save some cash and just open your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 3, because we're going to learn about life and ministry today, and we're going to learn about prayer as well. And we'll learn this about prayer, what Ole Hallisby says in his book on prayer, which is simply titled Prayer. He said this, Note here what prayer is. To pray to Jesus is to tell Jesus what we lack. I think we can all see how different our prayer life would be if we would only learn this aspect of the, whole, the holy art of prayer, with which the mother of Jesus was familiar. To most of us, prayer is burdensome because we have not learned that prayer consists in telling Jesus what we or others lack. We do not think that that is enough. Instinctively, we feel that to pray cannot be so easy as all that. For that reason, we rise from prayer many times with heavy hearts. All this is changed when we, like the mother of Jesus, learn to know him so well that we feel safe when we have left our difficulties with him. Prayer is simply telling Jesus what you or others Lack And so save your money and don't buy the book Christian Prayer for Dummies because I can sum it up for you now. Tell Jesus what you lack, whatever you need. Just tell Jesus. Pour your heart out to him. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that Jesus will give us whatever we want or whatever we ask of him. But he does extend the invitation to us to come and pour our hearts out to him. Jesus says this morning right now to everyone here, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know, the Greek word there for easy is the word kindness. I don't know why more English translations don't capture that. Jesus says, my yoke is kindness. My burden is light. So the question is, will you come to Jesus today? He's offering you rest right now. And so what's weighing you down today? What do you need this morning in your life? I mean, like right now, what do you need in your life? What is happening in your life right now that has you tossing and turning 
in bed at night? What has you biting your nails and skipping meals because you simply have no appetite? What do you need? What do you lack? Wisdom? Peace? Strength? Love? Discernment? Cash? Maybe you need some extra cash. Whatever it is, just tell Jesus. That's exactly what we'll see with Solomon today. The Lord, Yahweh, when I say Yahweh, that's God's covenant name in Hebrew. Yahweh will appear to Solomon in a dream and he will give Solomon a blank check. Hey Solomon, wake up buddy, ask for me whatever you want. What do you want? And Solomon tells the Lord exactly what he wants. And what Solomon asks for is very instructive for us because, number one, it reveals our true condition. It reveals who we really are. And number two, it reveals what kind of God Jesus is. He's a kind and generous and gentle Savior. And our condition, honestly, is far worse than we often think And Jesus is far better than we ever dared believe. Our opinion of ourselves is too high. And our opinion of Jesus is too low. So let's change that today. Let's change that. Look at 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? Now, if you remember from last week, we observed that Solomon has been repeatedly offering 1,000 plus burnt offerings to the Lord at Gibeon. So Solomon is wore out. He is exhausted from a day of sacrificing so many sheep. And so he finally crashes in his bed and he's busy counting sheep now. And the Lord appears to him in a dream. This was a dream, but not a dream like we might have. God is speaking here. He's having a conversation with Solomon in this dream. This is not one of those dreams that we might have where we wake up and we tell someone, I had the craziest dream last night. I dreamed the sky was raining M&Ms and unicorns were playing tennis and Mr. Rogers was riding a unicycle while using pancakes to play frisbee with Bigfoot. This is not one of those dreams. God is communicating with Solomon. God is speaking with Solomon in this dream. Now, this kind of event was common in earlier periods of redemptive history, but this is not how God speaks to us today. So please be very careful in saying that God has spoken to you in a dream. Now, can God use a dream to remind you to pray for someone? 
Of course. If I have a dream that one of my children rides a unicycle off a cliff and dies, then I probably wake up that morning and I pray for that child and I'm reminded that I need to be praying for that child. I'm not saying that God can't use those things to remind us of certain things. But I think we should be cautious in saying, God spoke to me in this dream. So please don't wake up and say, I had the craziest dream last night. The sky was raining M&Ms and unicorns were playing tennis and Mr. Rogers was riding a unicycle while using pancakes to play Frisbee with Bigfoot. I think the Lord wants me to start serving with the youth group. Maybe he does. Maybe that's a logical conclusion to that kind of dream. Or maybe it was just a weird dream. Maybe you ate too many of the new flaming hot nacho cheese Doritos before you went to bed. My point is that God has now spoken to us in his word and in his son, as Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says. You don't need to rely on tennis playing unicorn dreams to get direction from God or to have him speak to you. You have the Bible and that is enough. Open it. Read it, and boom, God just spoke to you. And so God appears to Solomon in this dream, and he has a conversation with Solomon. And what we read in verse 5 is that Yahweh basically gave Solomon a blank check. He said, ask what I shall give you. What do you want? The verb to ask appears eight times in this passage. In addition, verse 10 states that Yahweh was pleased when Solomon asked for wisdom. And since Yahweh was pleased with what Solomon asked for, I think one angle of the passage before us is that we are being instructed in how to pray. So one of the themes of this chapter is asking God for things in prayer. Now, I know that sometimes prayer doesn't give us the warm fuzzies, right? Praying is hard. If you're honest, praying is hard. It's just a fact of life and ministry that prayer meetings are probably the least attended events in the life and ministry of a church, right? Now, why? Well, there are many answers to that question, but if we're honest, one reason we don't show up at prayer meetings to pray is because we often find it difficult to pray. It's hard to pray. And so knowing that, how can we get excited about prayer? What might stir our hearts to pray? Well, for starters, our hearts will be stirred to pray when we dwell on God's kindness to us. We've been talking a lot about God's kindness to us as a church lately. The elders and staff last weekend had a retreat, and we started our retreat by reading Scripture about God's kindness to us, and then we talked about how God has been kind to our church lately. We talked about how God has been kind, how He was kind to us in 2018. So what we're trying to do as leadership, and we want this to catch on for all of us, is we want to be speaking more and more of God's kindness to us. So let's focus as a church this year by saying things like, God was kind to us when, or Jesus was so kind to our family when, or the Holy Spirit was kind to me when. So instead of just saying the junior high students had an awesome time at winter camp in Hume, start saying things like, God was kind to us at Hume this year because he allowed it to snow, which it is snowing up there. 
And I know that one of my boys, Asher, is loving it because it's snowing up there. So let's start recognizing God's kindness to us with everything that happens in life and in ministry here at Grace. And parents, ask your children this question as you put them to bed at night. Ask them, how was Jesus kind to you today? You may have to help them with the answer. You could say, he provided you with food. You got to eat pancakes for dinner. That's his kindness. So help your kids to see and to connect everyday life to God's kindness. And if you do it, you'll actually begin discipling them in how to see God at work in their lives. And you will help them connect all the good things that are happening in their life to God's kindness. And then you can teach them how to pray and give thanks for all the evidence of God's kindness that they see in their life. And that's what Solomon does here. He focuses on God's kindness to his family. He connects God's kindness to his father David. He sees God's kindness in keeping his promise that David would always have a son sit on the throne. Solomon is seeing God's kindness in keeping covenant. Look at verse 6. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in upright of heart towards you. Solomon knows that the Lord had been good to his father David. And Solomon uses one of the most theologically packed words here, the Hebrew word hesed, which the ESV usually translates as steadfast love. It's probably how most of your English uh, translations capture this Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is the, the Lord's covenant loyal love. Old Testament scholar Eugene Merrill says this. He says, Hesed is the love of God that commits him to a relationship or course of action to which he has pledged himself by covenant. Hesed is God's unwavering faithfulness to his people and to his promises. It's one of the most important Hebrew words, probably the most important Hebrew word, because it stresses the covenant nature of our God. This is Yahweh's covenant love, his faithful love, his loyal love. And I've shared this with you before, but I think really perhaps the best definition of the Hebrew word hesed comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible, the children's book by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Hesed is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's his care, his commitment to his people, to his children. Now, what's fascinating is that the Hebrew word for stork, hasadah, is related to the Hebrew word hesed. Now, think about that. The Hebrew word for stork is related to hesed. Now, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, the word or the bird. I don't know if Adam named storks uh, hasadah in in. Genesis chapter 2, or if later on in life, they looked at birds and they thought, oh, that's just like God's hesed, his covenant love. I don't know which came first, but they are related from the same root because storks are uh, uncommonly caring of their young. Even far past the age when their, their young can fly away from the nest, you see storks still being very kind to their children. 
And so the Hebrews looked at storks and said, there's a picture of Yahweh's covenant love for us. That's what hesed means. And that's what Solomon is highlighting in his prayer. So if you struggle to pray, which we all do at some point in our lives, dwell on God's kindness to you and then let that truth springboard you into prayer. But Solomon does not just focus on who God is. He is also aware of who he is, and that shapes his request to the Lord. In verse 7, Solomon calls himself a little child who does not know how to go out or how to come in. Now, Solomon does not mean that he is literally a small child, because at this point, he is a young married man. What Solomon means when he says that he is a child is that he is helpless. He is needy. He is desperately needy for the Lord. Solomon is aware of the task before him to lead the nation of Israel as king, and so this shapes his request. Where he is in his life and ministry, who he is as king, all of that just kind of comes out in prayer. All that he is and all that's going on in his heart and in his life just burst out in his prayer to Yahweh in the middle of the night in a dream. This is who he is in his core. He's woken up in the dream in the middle of the night. What do you want? I'm a child. I need wisdom. It just comes out who he is. And it's instructive for us. Solomon begins where he is. He begins with his helplessness. Now, we know that praying can be hard. And one reason it is hard to sit still and pray is because of all that floods into our minds when we try to pray. We've all been there before, right? You want to sit down and talk with God. You get a good night's sleep. You get up early. You make your coffee. No one's up. It's just you and your Bible and Jesus. You're ready to pray. You start to pray. And then what happens? Everything in the world floods into your mind. Things that you don't even care about. Here they are. Suddenly, they're there. That's probably happened to all of us, right? You sit down to pray and then one million things flood into your mind. All the things that you have to do, all the things that you are worried about, the to-do list, the meetings, the games, the doctor's appointments, the in-laws, the in-laws who think you're an outlaw, the broken relationships, the diagnosis from the doctor, the messy family situation, your children, your children's problems and broken relationships, etc. Any and everything can pop into your mind when you try to pray. And so what do you do? How do you pray when one million things flood into your mind? You start with all the stuff that's invading your mind. You pray about that. You pray about all the things that pop into your mind. You pray about all the things you have to do, all the things that you are worried about, the to-do list, the meetings, the games, the doctor's appointments, the in-laws, the in-laws who think you're an outlaw, the broken relationships, the diagnosis from the doctor, the messy family situation, your children, your children's problems and broken relationships, etc. You just start with where you are. I've learned this from Paul Miller and his excellent book on prayer, A Praying Life, Connecting with God in a Distracting World. I highly recommend this book to you, especially if you struggle to pray. Like, there's no condemnation in this book saying you got to get up at 4 a.m. and pray for three hours. No, it's real. Paul Miller says this, and I've shared this with you before, but I have found it to be very helpful to me. It's actually transformed how I pray. 
He says this, the criteria for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. Don't try to get the prayer right. Let me time out the quote there, okay? Sometimes we do this, I gotta get the prayer right. There's an acronym, ACTS, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I gotta start with adoration, but I'm worried about my kids. I gotta start with adoration, but I'm worried about my kids. Skip the acts and pray about your kids. Now, back to the quote. Don't try to get the prayer right. Just tell God where you are and what's on your mind. That's what little children do. Tell him where you are weary. If you don't begin with where you are, then where you are will sneak in the back door. Your mind will wander to where you are weary. The very things we try to get rid of, our weariness, our distractedness, our messiness. I'm sorry, I woke up the baby yelling. (laughs) She's not bothering me. That, where am I at here? Distractedness. Your baby's not distracting me. (laughs) The very things we try to get rid of, our weariness, our distractedness, our messiness, are what get us in the front door. That's how the gospel works. That's how prayer works. So instead of being paralyzed by who you are, begin with who you are. That's how the gospel works. God begins with you. It's a little scary because you are messed up. God would much rather deal with the real thing. Jesus said that he came for sinners, for messed up people who keep messing up. Come dirty. Start with where you are. That's where Solomon started. Solomon just tells Yahweh what was on his mind. He started with where he was. God asked him what he wanted. And what did Solomon say? Solomon began with who he was and where he was. He began with his helplessness. Solomon knew that the task before him was too great to pull off by himself. Solomon knew that there were too many people in Israel for him to be responsible for. So he starts with his helplessness and need. And that's where you should start. Especially if you struggle to pray or you're easily distracted. Just tell Jesus what you lack. Cast your burdens on him because he cares for you. All those things that are flooding into your mind that have your heart worked up, Jesus cares about that. You're not going to bother him by saying, Jesus, I'm worried about one of my kids and their schoolwork and their progress and their grades. We tend to think Jesus isn't concerned about that. Jesus is concerned about that. Just tell him, cast your burdens on the Lord because he cares for you. Peter didn't say, cast your burdens on the Lord because he's sovereign and can do something about it, which is true. Cast your burdens on the Lord because he cares for you. He cares about all those little things that keep creeping into your mind when you try to sit down and pray. Begin with the reality of who you are and the situations and the circumstances that you are facing, and just start telling Jesus about it. Tell him what you lack. Tell him what you need. Tell him how helpless you feel in that situation. And then that glorifies Jesus as the all-sufficient Savior. You get the gain, and he gets the glory, as John Piper says. You get the help, and he gets the glory. You get the strength, and he gets the glory. 
So understand this grace. The sweet spot of life and ministry is recognizing and coming to grips with your weakness and helplessness and trusting Jesus' ability to meet your need. It's realizing that 2 Corinthians 12 is the normal Christian life. Listen to the Apostle Paul describe normal life and ministry for God's people. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 10. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, his glory, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For the sake of Christ, I'll deal with this weakness and this issue and this problem. That's the normal Christian life right there. You better get used to it. That's what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple. It's weakness. And if you can stomach that truth, then weakness actually becomes the sweet spot in life and ministry. Think about that. If you can stomach that truth, that weakness is the normal Christian life, then weakness, the thing that we all hate, it actually becomes the sweet spot in life and ministry. Being dependent and being desperate, which we all hate, that becomes the sweet spot of life and ministry because that's when we get connected to the Holy Spirit and His grace. Realizing just how weak and needy and dependent you are can be a good thing because you get Jesus. It seems like a scary place to be, But the fact of the matter is that it is reality. It's where we are. Whether we admit it, whether we can stomach that truth or not, the problem comes when we try to do life and ministry without Jesus and do it instead in our own strength and in our own wisdom. And that's when we get in trouble and that's when we make a mess of things. Neediness is what qualifies us for God's grace. Neediness is what qualified Solomon for God's grace. And so the thing that we all hate, weakness and helplessness and dependency and neediness, that's what actually gets us in the door to see Jesus. Why? Because grace always flows downhill. Grace comes to the humble, to those who can embrace that they are just a small child like Solomon who does not know how to go out or to come in. And so whatever is going on in your life right now, my guess, my hunch, is that God is lovingly trying to get your attention to remind you that you cannot do life on your own apart from Him. Jesus is telling you today, stop being allergic to weakness. Become like a child. Children are good at being helpless. Hey, you cannot do this on your own. That's what Jesus is saying. What Solomon is getting at here is that helplessness is what characterizes children. 
And Solomon feels like a child, therefore he feels helpless. We saw this repeatedly last year as we went through the Gospel of Mark. We saw that we have to learn to be helpless. We have to learn again and again how to be desperate. We have to learn again and again and again how to be dependent. And little children are good at this. It's all they know, and they are totally comfortable being helpless. Children, for them, they're like, this is the sweet spot in life, being helpless. Children never toss and turn in bed at night because they're helpless and absolutely dependent on their parents. Children never go to school and say to one another on the playground at recess, I am so stressed out. I am so helpless. I'm so dependent on my parents. I can't do anything on my own, and it's keeping me up at night. Kids never say that. They never think that way. Adults, on the other hand, we hate helplessness. Adults are allergic to helplessness. We break out in hives when we have to admit that we are helpless. We despise it. We don't want to be helpless, desperate, like children. I mean, we're adults for crying out loud, right? We like to plan, we like to organize, we like to strategize, and we think we have everything under control, and that's why we're allergic to helplessness, and it's probably why we don't pray. But little kids, helplessness and neediness is all that they know, and they're so good at it, aren't they? Children are skilled at being needy, and they just ask for help, don't they? Children have no problem asking for help or asking for things, do they? They have no problem asking for things. They don't struggle. Should I ask? Should I not ask? Should I ask? They just ask. Can we have donuts today? They just ask. Even in the middle of the night, children have no problem asking for things, do they? Or when you're in the bathroom... I need a sock. I'm in here. Right? Children just ask for help and it doesn't phase them. Why? Because it's all that they know. Because they know their reputation is not riding on it. They need help, so they just ask. And that's what Solomon does here. He knows that he is helpless like a child and the future is scary for him. Solomon is at a scary place as he begins his term as king. He's just taken over the throne from his father, King David. The King David. Solomon has big shoes to fill. But Solomon is learning that the safest place is actually the scariest place. The safest place is to be right smack dab in the middle of a scary situation and to embrace your helplessness because that's when you get Jesus When a child is scared, what's the safest place for them? Being with their parents. It's the same for us. In the dark times, surrounded by the unknown of the future, that's when we come to the end of ourselves and we realize that we cannot do it on our own and we collapse and give up and we just run to Jesus. And that's Solomon here. So whatever is going on in your life today, whatever you are facing in your future, embrace your helplessness and run to Jesus. Are you facing heartbreaking family issues? Embrace your helplessness and just run to Jesus. Are you overwhelmed with life? Embrace your helplessness and just take off running to Jesus. 
Are you overwhelmed trying to raise God-fearing kids in a fear-filled world? Embrace your helplessness and run to Jesus. Are you struggling as a single person? Whatever it is that we face, whatever situation a church faces, whatever situation disciples face, the answer, though uncomfortable, though hard to admit, is to embrace your helplessness and run to Jesus and tell him what you lack. And then Jesus is glorified as the all-sufficient Savior. You want to glorify Jesus, right? It should be the heartbeat of a Christian. I want to live a life that glorifies him and pleases him. You want to please Jesus? You want to glorify Jesus with your life? Admit that you are desperately dependent on him and run to him. And then he is magnified as an all-sufficient Savior. But what does Solomon pray for? How does he respond to this blank check from Yahweh? Look at verse 9. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. The Hebrew is, give your servant a hearing heart. So Solomon's heart here revealed he needed a new heart. The Old Testament idea of the heart was not just the emotions, it contained the, the intellect, the affections, the will. And so Solomon is not asking for a touchy-feely heart because he wants to get in touch with his feminine side. He's asking for a hearing or understanding heart or an understanding mind in order to rule and judge God's people. In other words, Solomon knows that he needs wisdom. Solomon does not want to do life and ministry in the kingdom without God's wisdom. He's no dummy. He knows he needs wisdom. So Solomon is saying I may be dumb, but I'm no dummy. King dumb needs kingdom wisdom. And God gives Solomon the wisdom that he's asking for. Look at verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked for this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and you have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked for wisdom. And not riches, not long life, not the destruction of his enemies. And it, please God, it pleases God when we come to him and when we admit our helplessness and we admit our need. It pleases God when we can admit that we're dummies. It pleases God when you can say, I'm an idiot. I need your wisdom. It pleases God when we can say, I may be dumb, but I'm no dummy. I need you, Lord. I need your wisdom. Help That glorifies Jesus when you can say, I need you. You are my all-sufficient Savior, and I am desperate for you. That glorifies Jesus. Solomon knew his limitations. He knew he was a dumb kid who desperately needed Yahweh's wisdom. He embraced his helplessness and ran to Yahweh. And that means then 
that your weakness and your dependence and your desperation is what qualifies you for ministry. Just like Solomon here. He was a young man, not very wise, not very skilled, not very experienced, and yet he was the new king. So instead of trying to fake it till you make it, Solomon embraced his weakness and he asked the Lord for wisdom. His weakness became the opportunity for wisdom to enter his life. And it's true for us. Jesus loves desperate people who ask for wisdom. Jesus loves desperate people and he lives to have desperate people approach him and ask for help. And Jesus loves desperate churches, and he lives to have desperate churches ask him for help. And that's good news for us, Grace. Churches that succeed in ministry are ones that know, just like Solomon, that they are desperate and they want no success apart from from dependence on the Spirit of God. Listen, we do not want to succeed here at Grace because we have all the strategies that all the leadership books say we should have. Because we've read all those leadership books, we want to succeed in life and ministry here at Grace. Not because we have core values and mission and vision. We want to succeed here at Grace because we are desperately dependent on the Spirit of God. I don't want us to succeed any other way. Not because we're clever, not because we're cute, not because we're artsy, but because we're dummies. Just pure, unadulterated need. Just being idiots and dummies who are dependent on God's wisdom, just like Psalm. And that glorifies Jesus. And if God moves mightily here at Grace and some sort of old-fashioned revival breaks out and people ask us what we did, we'll just say this to them. We just admitted to God that we were idiots and dummies and we got on our knees and prayed. That's it. We asked for wisdom. There's no secret strategy or leadership nugget that we can share with you. We just embrace that we were idiots who could not do a thing without the Holy Spirit's help. And we asked him for help, told him what we lacked, and he just showed up and began using us. That's it. We only want to succeed here at Grace. We only want success here at Grace that is birthed out of dependence on the Holy Spirit. That's birthed out of prayer. Let me say that again. We only want success here at Grace that is birthed out of dependence on the Holy Spirit and that is birthed out of prayer. And so that means that whatever ministry you are a part of, make prayer a priority. Please learn from Solomon here. In your Sunday school classes, make sure you stop and pray. In your small groups, make sure you stop and pray and say, God, we're desperate for you. At your board meetings, make sure you stop and pray. Make prayer and admitting your helplessness a priority. And then sit back and watch what Jesus can do. He'll show off. The Holy Spirit will show off when we pray prayers like that. He'll come and he will totally, we'll be totally flabbergasted. So let's get comfortable being dependent as a church. It it will be this way every single day until Jesus returns. It's who we are, right? It's who we are. We might as well embrace it. What could go wrong? What are the options? To try to do it in our own strength? To try to do it in our own wisdom? 
We can plan, strategize, try to pull this off in our own strength and in worldly wisdom, or we can embrace who we are as weak, dependent people and just simply ask Jesus to help. And then that glorifies Jesus as the all-sufficient Savior. Everybody wins. Do you see that? If we can can stomach that truth, if we can swallow that pill and say, Jesus, we're we're weak, we're needy. If you don't show up, nothing's going to happen. If we can do that, guess what? Jesus shows up. People are ministered to. We do life and ministry in the kingdom of God for God's glory, and then God's glorified. It's a win-win situation. If we can embrace it. If we can embrace that helplessness is what prayer is. That's what prayer is. Prayer is just admitting you are helpless. As Jared Wilson says, prayer is a living parable of faith because it presupposes helplessness. When we pray, we are acknowledging that we do not have the power to accomplish whatever we are bringing before the Lord. Conversely, when we are not praying, it is because we are essentially saying, I've got this one. Dummies say, I've got this one. Idiots say, I've got this one. Dummies, when a situation comes up in their life, a dummy looks at the the overwhelming life situation and says, Jesus, I've got this one. Dummies say, I've got this one. Do I need to keep saying it? Dummies deal with life and say, Jesus, you're busy. I've got this one. Dummies skip prayer and don't see it as crucial for how to do life and ministry in the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. Dummies skip prayer and don't see it as crucial for how to do life and ministry in the kingdom of God. So don't be a dummy. If you get anything out of this sermon, get this. Don't be a dummy. Wisdom says, I can't do this on my own, Lord, and I need you. Wisdom says, I don't got this one. Wisdom is running to an all-sufficient Savior who is gracious to sinners and dummies like us. So run to Jesus today. Run to the God who loves you and gave himself for you. Run to the God who invites sinners to experience his rest. Run to the God who is merciful to sinners. Run to the God who says there is now no condemnation. Run to the God who says, I can't remember your sins. Run to the God who is working all things together for your good. Run to the God who is making all things new. This is the God that we come to when we pray. So we should pray, right? We should run to him. We're not coming to some ogre. We're not coming to some cranky dad who doesn't want to be bothered. When we come to God in prayer, and God, what do you want? He's not on his iPhone saying, what do you want? We, no one ever does that here, right? No parent ever does that, right? What do you want? I'm on Facebook. God doesn't do that to us, does he? We come to him and he says, come here. Sit in my lap. Tell me what's troubling your heart. That's the God we go to. So instead of telling yourself, I got this, tell Jesus what you lack. He loves to help weak, needy people. He loves to dispense wisdom to dummies. James says that God gives wisdom generously, not a few at a time, 
like a kid will do. If a kid gets a pack of Skittles and all their friends gather around, one or two kids will get one or two Skittles, and then that kid says, no more, because he realizes, I'm about to lose all my Skittles. Jesus, according to James, loves to give wisdom generously. Jesus whistles and a truck backs up. Beep, beep, beep. And pallet after pallet after pallet of wisdom is unloaded for you and me. He gives generously. And that's good news for people like us. Let's close with some words of Jesus and realize that when I read them out loud, Jesus will be speaking them personally to you in your situation, whatever you are going through right now in your life. Jesus says this to you personally right now. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Whatever is going on in your life in ministry, Jesus just spoke those words to you. I triple dog dare you to take him up on his offer. Jesus, thank you that you've extended this invitation. You, Lord, you've just flung wide the doors and said, come on in, all you dummies, anybody that needs wisdom, anybody that needs strength and help and peace, I'll give it to you. Just come in, the doors are open. What a gracious, generous God you are. And what dummies we can be, God. Because the door's open, it's free. The gates have been flung open, and yet we want to stay on the outside and try to do it ourselves. And yet you still don't even condemn us for that because you're so merciful and kind. Lord, we as individuals and as a church family want to acknowledge our weakness, just how desperate and dependent we are. And we want to confess, Lord, we've tried to say, I've got this one. And we want to say, now, we don't got this one, Lord. We need you. So we just humble ourselves and say, use us to minister your grace to people in our lives and in this city and on the Central Coast. And then we'll point to you and say, you're the all-sufficient Savior who deserves all the glory for whatever you decide to do through us. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.